As a baseball fan, you've probably seen teams make season-changing deals during the MLB winter meetings. These are high-stakes sessions, and they've been the birthplace of some truly impressive trades in baseball history. However, not all negotiations that have taken place during these times have proved fruitful. In fact, some have gone down in history as the worst trades ever. So are you ready to delve into the world of MLB trade blunders from these winter meetings? Let's get to it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I'm your host, Jeff Lambert. It's great to be back with you. I know we haven't put out an episode in a little bit, but we're back on the horse. I'm excited about what's coming up in 2024, and I'm happy to have you along for the ride. We've got a great topic today for you to enjoy over this Christmas stretch. Hopefully, you're getting a chance to get some downtime with your family, you know, get a little bit of time away from work, be able to recharge. Uh, That's my hope for you, and maybe this is part of the entertainment that you need to get there. So thanks for tuning in in advance. Before we get to the episode, as always, I want to give some feedback from you uh, about what's been happening, things that you've been saying. I always want to highlight what's going on in the community as we grow it. So first thing I want to talk about is the last episode we did, we talked about Warren Spahn, not only his baseball career, but also his heroism serving in the armed forces, particularly during World War II and how he was able to balance a legendary career with service to his country. I asked you a question in the newsletter at the end of that episode. If you thought Warren Spahn was a top 10 all-time pitcher based on his stats and the fact that a big chunk of his prime career was spent serving overseas and he missed those prime years. So 70% of you overwhelmingly said, yes, Warren Spahn is a top 10 all-time pitcher. And 30% of you said no. So overwhelmingly, it seems like based on the case, at least that I had tried to bring in the last episode, you agreed that Warren Spahn definitely is in that upper echelon of pitchers in MLB history. It was great to explore his story. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did researching it. Moving on, I want to also take a moment every episode to share what you've been saying to me. I love to get your feedback. Keeps me motivated, keeps me excited to do this show. So remember, you can reach out to me by email. You can send me a message on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, I'm trying to get back into X or Twitter. We'll see about that. Um, but you sent me a message. I'd love to hear from you. I got one from Brandon a couple of weeks ago. Brandon M. He had this to say, quote, hello. I just wanted to reach out and say, I absolutely love your podcast. I do a lot of driving for work and listen to a few different podcasts. I love yours. I've always loved baseball and love the stories and characters of the game. And your show has it all. Brandon, thank you very much for that comment. I appreciate it. And also, Brandon has his own podcast called Hardball Sports. We're actually working on doing a collab together. So I would encourage you to check out his show. Uh, I listened to an episode. It was, it was, I really enjoyed it. So uh, check out the show notes in the description. There's a link to his podcast. If you like sports, I highly recommend you check it out. I'm assuming that's why you're here in the first place. So take a moment, support Brandon. Uh, Great podcast going on, and we're going to see if we can work together in the future. Also, real quick. I want to say welcome to our new subscribers. We had a lot of them since the last episode. So real quick to go through, thank you for signing up for the weekly newsletter. Becoming a free subscriber, it means a lot to me. So I want to take a moment and recognize Kirk A., Ben David, T. Barvik, Logan L., Jason M., Mitchell B., Termite1971, great username, Alexander S., Greg W., Robert C., Zach S., Ryan W., Zachary M., Sadie B, Kyle D, Washfan320, and Bill K. 
Thank you all for joining the free tier of the newsletter. I hope you're enjoying what you're getting in your inbox. And thank you so much for joining the community. Really excited for 2024. Have some great things to share in the coming weeks about where we're going, additional perks for you, how we're turning this into a network that I think is going to grow for all of your sports history needs. So good times are coming. Great times have already been had. So uh, without further ado, we're going to get to our topic today. We're going to talk about the MLB winter meetings, how they started, how the American and National League approached them. And then we're going to jump into talking about what were some of the worst trades that came out of this uh, very hectic period in baseball history for free agent signings and trades. We're going to focus just on the trades because we'd be here for five hours if I threw in the other one. So I hope you enjoyed. Let's get to it. To start our conversation, I wanted to go through very quickly, what are the MLB winter meetings? So here's a quick overview. The tradition of MLB winter meetings dates back to actually 1876, and it was marked by the formation of the National League. It's been going on ever since. It's an annual ritual, takes place in the offseason, usually starts around the first week of December, and in modern times, it's seen as the kickoff to free agent signings and trade discussions that commence between teams in the offseason. So in a modern day sense, the MLB winter meetings are when representatives from each of the 30 major league baseball teams convene for these meetings. You see minor league representatives there. There's media personnel. There's even job seekers that go looking for ways to enter the baseball industry. It's seen as a very hustle and bustle type of event. It revolves around mostly general, general managers getting together. They're sharing insights. They're engaging in negotiations, kind of tiptoeing around and see what trades could be made, hatching up strategies designed for the upcoming season. So the centerpiece of this event usually is, this is a good time to figure out if there's any trades that can be made to improve teams. And oh my goodness, some trades have certainly made history during this time, but not always for the right reasons. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So we're going to talk about the biggest trade failures from the MLB winter meetings. So strap in, we're going to dig into some of the most surprising and underwhelming trades to come out of this time period. And I think going back on this for me, it reminds me that, you know, even in the best of times for teams, there's speculating, there's gambling. And sometimes when you gamble, you're going to lose and you're not going to get that perfect team robster, even when you make these big trades where you hope things are going to change the course of your club's uh, trajectory. So it's just one of those things. Sometimes the trades don't always land. We're going to talk about ones that really didn't make the cut. So we're going to talk about five specific ones. Let's start off with, there are no particular order necessarily. These were just five I found the most interesting. And we're going to look at these transactions from two different perspectives. I'm going to give you a quick overview. Then I'm going to give you a breakdown of why the trade occurred. And then I'm going to talk about who got the short end of the stick. So obviously for one team, usually it worked out really well, but for another team, it was a total bust. And of course, that's the focus of this episode, non-balanced trades that came out of the winter meetings. So we're going to start with number five, Roy Halladay traded to the Phillies during the 2009 offseason. So the Toronto Blue Jays made a decision to send their ace, Roy Halladay, to the Philadelphia Phillies in the winter of 2009. And this remains a sour memory for many Toronto fans. On the Philly side, there was a lot of excitement. Halliday's acquisition was expected to herald in this continued era of success 
for the Philadelphia Phillies. So let's break down this trade. Why did it happen? So the Phillies front office had good reason to think that Roy Halladay was going to be that piece that they needed for continuing their championship run. And during his tenure with the Blue Jays, which was from 1998 to 2009, Roy Halladay had established himself around the league as a stud arm in baseball. Let me give you some context to that. He racked up impressive stats while he played for the Blue Jays. He put together a 148 and 76 record in 313 games. He had a career 3.43 ERA over 2,000 innings. He routinely was just really good at keeping opponents' bats quiet. He had a 1.2 whip, so walks plus hits per inning pitched, in case you're not familiar with that stat line. And furthermore, Roy Halladay was known as a very reliable guy. He uh, played through 49 complete games during his time with the Blue Jays, and he pitched 15 shutouts. He was usually available. Healthy guy, usually pitched over 30, started 30 games or more a year. So this was seen as a really good acquisition, even though he was over 30 at the time. Now, Toronto wanted something back for this kind of a player. So the goal was, let's get prospects. So at the time, the Blue Jays thought they were getting a pretty respectable haul. They got prospects Travis DeArnaud, Kyle Drabeck, and Michael Taylor in exchange for Halliday. Now, to give you... a uh, an idea during the time period of what people thought of these prospects. Travis D'Arnaud was touted as the second best catching prospect in baseball at the time he was traded. So there was hope for Toronto that they were getting a stud there. Kyle Drabeck was considered one of the top pitching prospects in the Philadelphia Phillies system. So again, a lot of hope there for him. And then Michael Taylor had showed a lot of high-end promise as an outfielder during his minor league time in Philadelphia's system. So all three of these prospects were designated for a a lot of scouts as untouchable, but Toronto was able to acquire them in exchange for their veteran ace, Halliday. So hope was high in Toronto that even though we're getting rid of Roy Halliday, hopefully we're getting back three guys that are going to become an anchor for our uh, rotation and our lineup in coming years. So who got the short end of the stick in this trade? Did the youthful prospects win out or was it the veteran pitcher? Unfortunately for Toronto, all of those acquired prospects did not live up to their expectations. Uh, they are not struggled with injuries and inconsistent play. Kyle Drabeck never established himself in the major leagues. And then Michael Taylor was traded away before ever playing a game for the Toronto Blue Jays. So it just did not pan out at all for Toronto. But in contrast, Halliday absolutely flourished in Philadelphia. The stud hurler delivered in many different ways. He won two Cy Young Awards while he was on the Phillies. He pitched a perfect game in the regular season, and he pitched a second no-hitter in the playoffs. And he was able to take Philadelphia back to the World Series, even though they didn't win. So all of this in the span of four years, his performance propelled the Phillies to that continued success they were looking for, even if they failed to secure a World Series title with him on the roster. Now, of course, sadly, Roy Halladay met a tragic, untimely end in 2017. He was uh, flying a solo plane, which crashed off the coast of Florida. So an untimely end for him. Uh, He pitched four seasons for the Philadelphia Phillies. It wasn't a long stretch. Remember, he was already in his 30s when he was traded. But certainly, what he gave them during that time would certainly be considered a success. Unfortunately for Toronto, they got next to nothing out of that deal. Three hopes, and all of them flamed out.
The next trade on our list is when Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter were traded to the Toronto Blue Jays in the offseason of 1990. So against expectations, the San Diego Padres decided to send Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter to the Toronto Blue Jays in exchange for Fred McGriff and Tony Fernandez during the 1990 December meetings. This is considered one of the worst trades in the MLB winter meeting history, and it seemed really good on paper, but the outcome told a different story. Let's talk about why this trade went down. The Padres were strategically trying to stock up on some more promising young players, and they took the opportunity to acquire Fred McGriff and Tony Fernandez from the Blue Jays. Now, they viewed McGriff, who was a first baseman, as his burgeoning talent. He had hit over 30 home runs and almost 100 RBI in each of his first three seasons with the Blue Jays. Then you had Tony Fernandez. He was this slick-fielding all-star shortstop. He was already a three-time all-star and a four-time Gold Glove Award winner. So they were seen as being able to fill gaps that the Padres needed to address. Now on the other side, the Blue Jays were in the hunt for a World Series title. They also wanted to bolster their lineup with experienced and high-performing players. So they got back Roberto Alomar, who was already a proven star player. He was great on the defensive side, and he had a potent hitting skill. Yeah, Joe Carter, who was a veteran, consistent power hitter, and he could really decisively dictate how a game could turn out, which I'm foreshadowing a little bit what he was able to do for Toronto later on. So this seemed like a balanced trade where each team was able to fill in their gaps. So who got the short end of the stick? Well, for the Blue Jays, they got exactly what they hoped for out of this trade, two World Series titles. Both Alomar and Carter were pivotal cogs in the 1992 and 1993 championship teams. And who knows, Toronto may have won a third World Series if that player strike hadn't canceled the 1994 season. It's a great what if. Now, in four seasons with the Blue Jays, Roberto Alomar was an all-star and a gold glove winner every single season he suited up for them. He also won the Silver Slugger Award in 1993 and he finished 6th in MVP voting in 1993. And then you have Joe Carter. He played 7 seasons for Toronto after this trade. And he was a 5-time All-Star, a 2-time Silver Slugger, and he finished in the top 10 in MVP voting 3 times. And of course, he also famously hit that World Series winning home run for the Jays in 1993. If you haven't seen it, it's a great moment. It's included in the newsletter for this week. Take a moment and go sign up. The link's in the show notes. You can watch the video right there. Now, the Padres, on the other hand, things didn't work out, even though both players they acquired played well for them. The Padres never won more than 84 games, and they didn't make the playoffs a single time with their two new assets in their lineup. So Fred McGriff, he lasted for just three seasons in San Diego. And in his final season, that was the big one. He was named an All-Star and he won a Silver Slugger Award, but only three seasons there. And then Tony Fernandez, he was only with the Padres for two and a half seasons and he made one appearance for the club. So you see the difference in accolades, but you also see the difference in team success. Like I said, the Blue Jays won two World Series because of this trade. And I can't underscore enough how much Alomar and Carter were pivotal to those playoff teams. the performances they turned in for Toronto. And then with San Diego, McGriff and Fernandez, they played well, but they both were out of the club very quickly. Uh, In 1993, the Padres conducted a 
for lack of a better word, a fire sale. And they dealt McGriff to Atlanta, and they sent Tony Fernandez to the New York Mets, and they also sent another slugger that was on their club, Gary Sheffield, away in a trade as well. So the Padres kind of gave up, and this trade didn't really net anything of meaning for them. As for Toronto, these were the two World Series championships in their history, and this trade made it happen. Let's look at the third worst trade from MLB's winter meetings on our list, and that accolade goes to the legendary Bill Veck. He traded everyone from the Chicago White Sox in 1975. Let me explain. So Bill Veck, who is long known by people uh, who study baseball history as being the guy for his promotional stunts, he was the entertainer extraordinaire in terms of running teams. I've got a great episode on him if you want to check it out. I'll put it in the show notes. So Bill Veck is the guy in charge of the Chicago White Sox during the 1975 offseason. And he arrived at the meetings and set up a table in the hotel lobby with a sign that read, Open for Business. Why would he do this? Well, there was a recent change that happened over the offseason in the collective bargaining agreement for Major League Baseball, and it allowed players more freedom to change teams. So Billy Showtime had to act because he feared that he wasn't going to be able to afford to keep his star players on the White Sox, so he made a preemptive move and decided to trade as many of them away as he could. So during this stretch, Bill Veck traded away 22 players from the White Sox roster. This included All-Star and 1972 AL MVP Dick Allen. He was the main draw for most GMs when they found that, oh, Veck's open for business here. And I mean, you can see why. Dick Allen had a career batting average of 292, and he had 351 home runs that he had racked up by this time. So Bill Veck, 22 players in like a two-week stretch. It's insane. So did this work for the White Sox? I can't really tell you who got the short end of the stick, but I, you know, how did it work out for one team, the White Sox? So trading 22 players would seem on its face like a franchise killer. It wasn't all doom and gloom for Chicago, though. They got some pretty good quality talent back in the process. So the star of the incoming horde of prospects and players they got for the 22 they sent out, they got a guy named Oscar Gamble, and he emerged as a great power hitter. He had a 297 batting average for Chicago over the next three seasons. And Gamble was also known for his trademark Afro, which came to symbolize this remodeled team that Beck had built. There were other just productive, solid lineup guys that helped keep the White Sox in the playoff hunt after all of these moves. Didn't really launch them to uh, you know another stratosphere, but it didn't put them in the basement necessarily either. So in retrospect, I guess this trade worked out somewhat differently than expected. The White Sox did wave goodbye to some of their best players, but they brought in some new faces and it helped them rebuild the team and stay competitive. So, But despite this, Vec's drastic decision to treat the MLB winter meetings in this way it's considered one of the most shocking events in the history of this time period uh, during these winter meetings. And to show up and put a sign up right in the lobby and trade 22 guys from your team, I don't think that's ever going to be topped again. All right, next on our list, we have Roger Maris, who was traded to the New York Yankees in 1959. Now, Roger Maris was a young 24-year-old outfielder who played for the Kansas City Athletics. And the New York Yankees needed somebody to hold down their right field position. 
So a swap occurred, and it turned out to be one of the most lopsided deals in the history books, and we're going to talk about it. So why did this trade go down? The 1958 season wasn't a great one for the Kansas City Athletics. They finished seventh in the American League. And management was looking to cut some salary and get multiple players back. So Roger Maris was an average hitter for them at the time. Uh, They didn't know what they had, to put it lightly. He had played in 99 games in 1958 for Kansas City, and he had hit 19 home runs. And then in 1959, he had played in 122 games, and he hit 16 home runs. And he had a good year that second year with the Athletics. He made the All-Star team. But he also missed quite a bit of time due to an appendix operation. So looking to capitalize on this young up-and-comer, the Athletics front office called up the New York Yankees. This wasn't a surprising move at all for the time period. In fact, the A's and the Yanks had been frequent trade partners for most of the 1950s. Kansas City was often referred to by the media as the Yankees' major league farm team. Uh, I thought that was an interesting aside that I came across. So Kansas City called up their frequent trade partner. They said, hey, we'll give you Roger Maris, good up-and-coming young player. What do you say? Kansas City, I don't think they thought they were going to get much more out of him. Solid young player, all-star here and there. Certainly not the um, slugger that he would turn into. So the trade occurred. The Athletics got back four players. They got back Hank Bauer, who was an outfielder who was known for making big catches. You had Don Larson, who was an experienced pitcher. And just three years prior to the trade, he had pitched the only perfect game in World Series history. So they thought that was a promising draw. The Athletics got back Norm Seaburn, who was another outfielder who had shown consistent batting averages and uh, dependable fielding ability, I think would be a good way to say it. And then you had Marv Thornberry, who was a first baseman, young guy, showed potential with his power at the plate. That's who they got back for Roger Maris. So who got the short end of the stick? You probably guessed it if you've heard anything about Maris's career. Initially, the trade was seen as balanced, but the scale swung heavily in favor of the Yankees in the next few years. Maris quickly cemented his place as a key player in the Yankees lineup. And when I say quickly, I mean quickly. In his first game in pinstripes, Roger Maris hit a single, a double, and two home runs in his first game with the Yankees. And in that first season, he got another all-star selection. He was named a gold glover, and he won the American League MVP. And he hit 39 home runs and drove in 112 RBI. Remember, just the year before, he had hit 16 home runs. And the next year with the Yankees, look at that number skyrocket to 39. Man. And then on top of that, the next season with the Yankees, Maris won the AL MVP again. And then on top of that, he broke Babe Ruth's single season home run record, which would last for 27 years when he got to 61 home runs. And he partnered up with Mickey Mantle during this time, and they just destroyed everybody they came in contact with. The Yankees made five consecutive trips to the World Series with this duo in the lineup. Now, as for the players that the Athletic got back, obviously no one could even come close to matching Maris's accomplishments. None of them really did anything to move the needle for the Athletics in terms of getting better. On the other hand, you have Maris achieving legendary status, one of the biggest names in baseball history. So this one obviously goes down as one of the worst trades that came out of these winter meeting times from the Athletic perspective. 
not from the Yankees' perspective. Next up, we have Miguel Cabrera, who was traded to the Detroit Tigers in 2007. So on the 5th of December at these winter meetings, the Detroit Tigers made a deal that formed the core of their lineup for almost a decade. They acquired Miguel Cabrera, who was a future Triple Crown winner, alongside pitcher Dontro Willis from the Florida Marlins. So how did this trade go down? Well, the Marlins were at it again at the 2007 winter meetings. They were looking to swap budding stars that they didn't want to pay in exchange for prospects, as is the circle of life down here in Miami. So you have the team's top trade bait that they're floating around to other clubs. That was a kid by the name of Miguel Cabrera. This is Cuban-born batting sensation. He had hit 313 on average with 138 home runs in just five seasons with the Marlins. Now, he was in the final year of a $740,000 contract with the Florida Marlins, and the team knew that they weren't going to resign him, so it's time to ship him off. So the Detroit Tigers stepped up to the plate, and they offered six top-notch prospects and young players in exchange for Cabrera. Those names included outfielder Cameron Mabin, who was the Tigers' first pick in 2005. Then you had pitcher Andrew Miller, who was Detroit's top pick in the 2006 draft. They offered up catcher Mike Ribello, who had hit 256 in 51 games with Detroit and also had a very successful minor league run before getting up to the top club. And they also threw in three minor league pitchers. You had Eulogio, hope I'm saying that right, De La Cruz. Dallas Trahern and Burke Badenhop. And De La Cruz hit 100 on the radar gun consistently, so there was excitement around him in particular. The Tigers also decided that they wanted to acquire left-handed pitcher Dontrell Willis from uh, the Florida Marlins with Cabrera, which was another uh, good thing for the Marlins because they needed to unload that salary. And Willis at that time, he was one of the top young southpaws in the league at that time, even though that previous season he had posted a 10 and 15 record with a 5.17 ERA. So, you know, overall it was seen as a good addition to get with Cabrera. So that's the trade. Florida's going all in with getting some top prospects. Detroit's emptying out the farm to get Cabrera and Willis to be able to solidify that championship run. So who got the short end of the stick? On paper, it did look like a solid deal for the Marlins in terms of how they run their club. They were getting two highly rated prospects in Maven and Miller. They were getting useful depth pieces, pieces, excuse me. They were getting promising young pitching prospects. Here's how things panned out with all of the prospects they got. Let's start with Cameron Maven. Maven struggled with the Marlins. Uh, he was eventually traded to the San Diego Padres in 2011. He carved out a respectable career on the West Coast. He was a journeyman outfielder, but he never lived up to that lofty prospect status as being a franchise anchor. At Andrew Miller, he also didn't have a great run with the Marlins. He posted a 5.89 ERA over two seasons, and he was actually traded to the Boston Red Sox after that. His career did rebound somewhat. He became a dominant reliever in the league, and he just didn't do it for the Marlins. The rest of the players in that trade had minimal impact. Rebello only played one season in Florida. De La Cruz, Trahern, and Baden Hop, the pitchers they got, had minimal to no contribution at the major league level in their careers. On the other hand, the Tigers absolutely scored with this trade. Miguel Cabrera, during his time in Detroit after this trade, was a seven-time All-Star. 
a five-time Silver Slugger, a two-time MVP, all of that with Detroit. And he also won the Triple Crown in 2012. He was the first player to do that since Ted Williams did it in 1967. And to cap things off, Cabrera also took Detroit back to the World Series in 2012. Unfortunately, they ended up losing to the San Francisco Giants that year. But no question, this trade worked out great for Detroit. Did not work out at all for the Marlins. But, you know, this is the cycle. Like I said, living here in Florida, seeing uh, family members who are Marlins fans go through this cycle of acquiring and developing talent, winning a World Series, and then getting rid of everybody. It just happens over and over. So hopefully that'll end at some point for Marlins fans where they can get a long-standing star to be able to grace the city. Anyways, I digress. Good for Detroit getting Cabrera. Worked out nicely for them. Well, folks, there you have it. You have a look at the triumphs and the heartbreaks from baseball's winter meetings. Deals like these, I mean, they've left fans scratching their heads. And I think they remind us again that baseball can be thrilling even in the offseason by seeing these deals either work out or not work out. And it's not just about the hits and the runs and the stats. It's that strategic bargaining. It's the surprise decisions. It's the things that make or break teams over just a few weeks during these winter meetings. So will it be happiness or disappointment that awaits your team during these December meetings? Only time will tell. And I hope it works out for you and your clubs. That's all for this week. Just a quick reminder for those of you who may be tuning in for the first time and you're still on the fence. Please take a minute and consider joining our free tier. You get, uh, if you sign up for our weekly newsletter, you get this episode right in your mailbox every week. I include photographs, quotes, videos, things that can deepen your experience with the content we're talking about. It's 100% free. Uh, In addition, I give you access to a bonus podcast episode every week called This Week in Baseball History where we go over the top moments that occurred for that week, um, you know, throughout time from, you know, the 1800s till now, we talk about those moments for each day during the week. It's a good way for you to be able to keep up with what happened throughout baseball over its long tenure. And all you have to do is go to rounders.substack.com to sign up 100% free. I'd encourage you to do so. Would love for you to join the community. It's growing every day. Exciting to see that happen. With that said, I wish all of you a happy, happy holiday season. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. See you next time. Rounders, A History of Baseball in America is produced by Jeffrey Lambert. Our research assistant is Cass Silver. A special thanks to our starting nine supporters, Nathan Halverson and Jack Wilson.